Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. It is going to be good. We are wrapping up our series, Jesus Didn't What? Come on, church. Jesus didn't what? Say that. Jesus didn't say that. And we have been unpacking during this series, we've been unpacking some lies that commonly get preached or get taught to us when we're in church. And it's almost as if the things that are being taught to us have been something that Jesus directly said that, ha- that we have to, to do, that we have to live by our influence. And a lot, of these, a lot of these statements that we looked at over the last couple of weeks, if you've grown up in church, man, those have been some damaging statements for you. They've kind of helped shifted uh, the way you see yourself, maybe the way you see God, right? Um, It provides more condemnation and guilt and shame than it does freedom. And how many of you know that 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 doesn't have place in the life of a Christian? Amen. Guilt, condemnation, and shame does not have place in your life. For the scripture says in in Galatians 5.1, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Oh, come on. We'll go back to some Daryl Evans 1998. We'll sing it. But where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we've looked at these lies over the last couple of weeks. And so uh, we, we, here are they, the, the ones that we already looked at. we got two more we're going to end the series with, right? So the first one was, uh, you must confess all your sins to be forgiven. Church, what? Jesus didn't say that. Come on. Uh, the second one was, God can only forgive the same sin so many times. Jesus didn't, right? Exactly. Uh, when you sin, God gets angry. Jesus didn't say that 100%. If you've missed these weeks, you can go back to the website, and you can watch them there, or you can check out the podcast, the Journey Church podcast. The next one, the fourth one was, God gives you hard times to teach you lessons. That is, God gives you sickness to teach you lessons. He brings you to poverty to teach you lessons. God destroys a relationship to teach you lessons. God doesn't bring hard things into your lives. Jesus didn't what? Say that. Right. Another one that's really hard for a lot of us to let go of because we've been taught this our whole life was the statement of God is in control. God is is actually up there like a great puppet master controlling every single thing that takes place in our lives. And we've been told that God is sovereign. God controls everything. But if that's our view of God, then we have a very distorted view of God. If that is our view of God, then we are worshiping one who is infinitely worse than Hitler was. I know that's a hard statement, but if you think about it, if God is the one controlling every single thing, then God controlled and allowed the, 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 the Holocaust. God controlled and has allowed the genocides to exist. And like God controlled and he allowed these things. See, that's not the case. God is not in control of everything, but God is absolutely 100% trying to work for the good of those who love him and are called to, according to his purpose in everything. There's a difference between being the root cause and, and, and being the paramedic, right, in that moment. So God is in control. Jesus what? Didn't say that. Come on, right? Uh, Another one was uh, Pastor Kim preached this. It was so good. She said, you know, we've been taught this lie that God loves you if, if whatever, if you give more, if you serve more, if you do more, if you, if whatever, memorize scripture more. God loves you if, right? Uh, Jesus didn't what? Say that. Come on. Hang in there with me, guys. The next one was, was God loves you when, almost like when you do these things, Jesus didn't what? Say that, right. God loves you, but there's always some kind of catch. Yes, God loves you, but you have to stop doing this and this and this and this. But we know that Jesus didn't say that 100%. Yeah, right. 
And so today we're looking at two more lies, and these lies are surrounded by probably one of the most touchiest subjects in the church today, and that has to do with finances. That has to do with giving. So we're going to unpack two of these uh, lies that, that Jesus just didn't say. Uh, the first one, and if you grew up in church, you grew up in a legalistic church, you've probably heard this, that uh, if you don't tithe, you are robbing God. If you don't tithe, will a man rob God? Where have I robbed thee? And tithes and offerings. That's a, a scripture. Have you ever heard that before? If you don't tithe, you're robbing God. Uh, if you've never heard that before, that's awesome. Just bear with me for the next 30 minutes. This doesn't apply to you. Another one that, that we've heard growing up, and, that, and depending on your background, see, I, I see this a lot more in the charismaniacs and the Pentecostals, you know. I came from that background. I came from a Pentecostal and a charismatic background. That's how I came to church. We, we did the Pentecostal two-step when we were dancing during worship, right? And we get so excited, we start running laps. We start doing cardio in church. Take laps. You just run, you know. It was very dangerous, you know, at times. You know, we didn't swing from chandeliers. That's a myth. But we did a lot of crazy things, right? Yeah, yeah, walk on pews, jump over. Oh, yeah, it was crazy, yeah. Um, but but this, this statement has often been told and shared in a lot of Pentecostal and charismatic uh, backgrounds. And this statement is this, that if you don't have enough finances, right, if you don't have enough to meet your needs, then brother, sister, you need to sow it as a seed. If you don't have enough to meet your needs, you need to sow it. As a seed. Now, before I get going, let me just say this. I 100% believe in giving financially. I believe in supporting ministries that are blessing people and doing the work of God, doing the kingdom of God. I believe in supporting ministries that are connecting people with Jesus to experience life. I believe in supporting Journey Church. You know, we believe it. My wife and I love what God's doing in our church. We love it. We started this church with no, with literally nothing, no finances, no nothing, right? First place we met, we met for three months, completely rent-free. That was, like, really awesome, right, rent-free. Well, it didn't matter because we didn't have money to pay rent. So the church that we were renting from or we were meeting in let us do it for free. We love that. So you know, my wife and I do not take a full-time salary from the church. We are part-time pastors here, and we have part-time jobs in the world that we live in. My wife is a hairstylist. She's amazing at what she does. She does amazing transformations and people. She loves helping people uh, look beautiful. I work at a company as a corporate chaplain in leadership development and business organization development, so that's what I do for that. But we don't take a full-time salary from, from Journey, and really at that point, because we don't want to put a strain on our church. We, we love our church. We see what God's doing in it. And we don't want to put a strain on it. We see uh, we're not a massive church. Um, we are grateful and we are blessed that we get to spend a lot of time ministering to people, studying scriptures, writing messages, scheduling volunteers, teaching students, doing weddings, doing funerals, counseling, and other things. And all of that would be very difficult for us to do if we were working 40-plus hours a week in, in the outside world, right? So there is a reason for that part-time salary. Um, and we are blessed and we thank God for what we do here. We're incredibly grateful. So all this to say, I believe in the giving aspect of ministry. Um, but I need to tell you this, and something that we've, we've made it a point and mission since we started the church, is that this will never be a place of guilt, condemnation, or manipulation. Do, do you hear me? There will never be a moment where you come to church excited to worship Jesus and leave church feeling horrible about the fact that you didn't give enough money to support whatever the thing we were doing. 
You didn't serve enough. You, you didn't worship enough. You didn't clap enough. You didn't do, you'll, never come, you'll never leave here feeling guilted or condemned at this church. That is not our heart. That is never our goal. Listen, you can come to Journey Church your entire life, never give a single dime, and still feel loved and still feel as valued as anybody else. And I promise you, we will not create a board that looks like this one. Can you put that board up there? Can you show me that picture? There you go. We will not create a board and put that up. Do you see what that says? Will a man rob God? Malachi 3.8. This is the non-tithers board. Put our names up on the board. You know what's crazy? Is that's actually a real picture. That's crazy. When I I went, when I was coming up in ministry, I had a very good friend of mine who was a youth pastor at a particular church, a certain denomination. And I remember him telling me one day, he said, man, I'm really struggling right now with with my church. He was on staff and he said, man, I'm struggling. Our our family's finances are struggling. He said, barely having, barely getting paid enough money to even make ends meet. And he said, but, but I'm getting this notice every, every month. And he showed me this notice. And the notice was from his church that showed him how much back tithe he was missing. Yeah, how much back tithe he was missing. And I asked him, I said, how, what, how do they even know this? He said, well, the, the, the thing that they do is, is when you become a member of the church, you're required to report how much income you make. I'm like, what? And then they take 10% of that, and they, they structure a billing system, and every month they send you a letter. You can mail your 10% in, and if you don't, they'll start sending collection notices. And if you get three months be- isn't this crazy? If you get three months behind, then they just bar your membership. It's extortion. (laughs) We know you love God, but it's time to pay up. Jesus did not say that, did he? Y'all in the front row, Jesus did not say that. Nope. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I mean, we can look at cases like that. That's an extreme case, but it's not extreme to say that there are a lot of churches where you go to and, and, and you literally are guilted into to giving. You'll never be guilted into giving here. Giving is always an opportunity. It's never an obligation. That deserved an amen. I thought that was really good. It was, yeah, it's always an opportunity. It's never an obligation. Right. Thank you. That was delayed, but thank you. Um, so let's look at that scripture real quick that we pulled from Malachi, because it is a scripture, and it does say that. Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 8, it says, will a man, what church? Rob God, right? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? And the response is, is what? In tithes and what? Offerings, right? In verse 9, it says, and then the follow-up is, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Even this whole nation. Some of you are like, I am ready for you to unpack that. Okay. There it is, right there in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, we must do it. And if it's in the Bible, we must obey it. And if it's in the Bible, then it applies to us, doesn't it? Oh, well, maybe we've been taught that, right? I heard you say it. What did you say? Context. Yes, context is very important. There's a phrase we use when we're going through uh, Scripture. We're studying Scriptures and scholars use it all the time. This phrase is context is king. Everybody say context is king. Context is king. 
That statement is supposed to help us remember meaning is determined not, by, not only by a particular phrase or verse, but also by the context of that verse. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I'm going to do more teaching today than preaching, maybe. Maybe. I'm going to do more teaching today than preaching. So there's going to be some information here. You know the deal. You can take notes and write it down, or you can take notes by taking pictures of the screen. We are so lazy. Right? We can do that. I don't blame you, though. All right? So context is, is key. And when you're, when you're looking at trying to draw context from a particular set of scriptures, you have to ask certain questions. Now, the first question is this. Who is the human author of that book? Who is the human author of that book? The second thing that you need to ask was who was the original intended audience of that book? Right? Who is the human author and who is the original intended, intended author? It'll be fixed on the screen. Don't worry. Who is the original intended author? <clears throat> now, understand this, and this is something important for you to remember. Okay? People have a hard time with this sometimes, but you need to let, just listen to what I'm saying. The Bible was written um, for you. The Bible was not written to you. Can you, can you, you hear me? The, the Bible was written for you in that we have this amazing thing here, these amazing sets of scriptures that we can look through, learn from, um, but not a single one of these books, these letters, um, were written to you. They were written to particular groups of people for particular situations in a particular set of time. Now, can we look at this and draw wisdom from it? Absolutely. But it is not written um, to you. So, number three. Here's the third question. What is the message of the chapter? What is the message of the chapter, right? Uh, number four. How does the verse relate to the verse or verses immediately before and after? And number five. How can the cultural distinctions of that time add to understanding the meaning? These are important things for us to grasp. So everybody right there, number two should say, who was the original intended audience? But you can still take a picture of that and fix it later. So let's go through and answer some of these questions real quick. You ready? Everybody ready? There it is. Look at that. He's so good. I probably sent it to him wrong. Oh, you didn't have to validate that. You could have said, no, pastor, I mistyped. But gosh. All right. So let's go through. And answer some of these questions, right? So who was, the, who was the human author of the book? Well, the book is the book of what? Malachi. So who was, the intent, who was the author of the book? Some would say it was Malachi, except for if you go and you begin to research this and you study this out, you'll learn that scholars don't believe that uh, the guy Malachi was uh, a real guy. They don't believe Malachi was the one who wrote it. They actually believe, um, and this is important, Malachi means my messenger. And a lot of scholars believe that this name was a pseudonym used by the real writer in order not to face retribution for his prophecies. Do you know what Israel had a history of doing to prophets who spoke boldly against their way of life? They killed them. So doesn't it make sense to say, we got to get something out to the people of Israel. I need to get this out. It's burning in my heart. Um, I'm going to say Malachi wrote this. Because then they'll be looking for Malachi. So they wrote it under the pseudonym, uh, the real writer, in order not to face retribution for his uh, prophecies. Now, Jewish tradition 
Jewish tradition, you can look at Tomad and all sorts of other ones, Jewish tradition assigns this writing to the scribe Ezra. Ezra, as in Ezra and Nehemiah and Second Chronicles. So that's who's writing this. Now, remember this, this fact that they believe that in order to not face retribution for his prophecies, he changed his name. All right, wrote it under a different name. The second question that you have to ask is who was the original intended audience of this book? Well, it was the post-exilic Jews, post-exiled Jews, those Jews who had come out of Babylonian captivity. And the Jews had become laxed in their religion. To use the churchy phrase, you probably heard this if you grew up in church, they were backslidden. You ever heard that? You ever heard that phrase before when someone is on fire for God, they start kind of getting a little cold, they start living their, their old life, and someone would say they are backslidden, right? You know, real church people, like, they are backsliding to hell on a razor blade and lemon juice. That's what they would, they would say. All, that's really church people. Leave it to church people, right? <laughs> Creative stuff. Um, but they would say that they were backsliding, right, those who had come out of, out of Babylon. Now, it's important to remember this writer is rebuking the people of Israel, and he's calling them back to the law in religious purity. He's calling the Israelites back to the law in religious purity. It's important to remember this, that the Jews believed, and this is what their writings, the scriptures tell us, that the reason Israel ended up in Babylonian captivity was their continual failure to adhere to the Jewish laws over and over and over again. God comes in and he scoops in and they make a mess of things. He gives them some things to, to follow and they start to follow and then they make a mess of things again. And they wind up in a pit and then God comes out and rescues them. And that's the cycle in the Old Testament. You read it over and over again. And so they land themselves in Babylonian captivity for 70 plus years because they refused to live according to law and live with religious purity. So coming out of Babylon, they are starting to become laxed again. They're heading down the same path. And so this prophet does what prophets do. They speak a, a word of correction to bring him back to this. You tracking with me? All right. Told you teaching. I'm going to preach in a minute. So uh, what message, what is the message of the chapter? Here we go. What's the message of the chapter? It is a rebuke. The message of the chapter is a rebuke for injustice and greed. If you go back and you look at the entirety of the chapter, it's a rebuke for injustice and greed. How does the verse relate to the verses immediately before and after it? The writer shows that the injustice that is being experienced stems back from a lack of generosity and faith. Specifically, you know who was neglected? Orphans and widows. Orphan and widows. And do you remember when Paul went to meet with Peter in the book of Acts and he's proclaiming the gospel? Do you remember when they talked to him? They said, this is the one thing that we want you to make sure you take care of. Take care of the orphans and the widows. And so a couple verses before that, there's this rebuke. They haven't taken care of the orphans. They didn't take care of the widows. They weren't taking care of employees. They weren't uh, taking care of the foreigners. They were all being neglected because they were becoming selfish. The storehouses were empty because they refused to tithe. They refused to give a tenth of their crops. Number five, how many of y'all learning something today? Y'all learning? 
All right. Number five, how can the cultural distinctions of that time add to the understanding and meaning? Well, that is a great question. And to understand that, we need to unpack the tithe and what was required. We need to unpack the tithe and what was required. The tithe, the word tithe in the Hebrew is mahaser, which means a payment of a tenth. And the first place, listen, the first place that we see a tenth mentioned in the Bible is back in the book of Genesis. Now, some people will say this. I'm geeking out on this. I love all this stuff. I don't know if you are, but just hang in there. I'm having fun. All right. So some people will say, even uh, what we call grace preachers will say, well, you know, yes, um, we're not under the law like the Jews were, but we're still required to give 10%. Because after all, if you go back to the book of Genesis, the first place that 10% is mentioned or a tenth is mentioned is in the book of Genesis. And it was Abraham who gave it. And Abraham wasn't even under a law that required 10%. So let's look at that. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 through 20. It says, and Melchizedek. How would you like to carry that name? Melchizedek. Think you get picked on at school? I'd just say my name is Mel. All right. And so Mel, the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High brought Abram some bread and wine. And verse 19, is, it says, And Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. He said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Now watch, verse 20. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies. And then Abraham gave Mel a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. And that's where it stops. You see that right there? It's, it's proof that even, uh, even though they're not under a law that requires us to give 10%, we're under grace like Abraham was under grace. Abraham still gave 10%. Thus, we should give 10% too. But there are some important things that we need to remember. Y'all ready? You ready? Here's important things we need to remember. Number one, that this idea of giving a tenth of your spoils from war was a very common practice in ancient Near Eastern cultures. It was a sign of immense respect. So if I conquer one land and I conquer one people, I would go to a fellow king or a fellow person and I would give a tenth of my spoils to them and it would begin to form a relationship, a bond. And so there was a sign of respect. And, and so this was a common practice. Now, number two, this was a one-time gift that Abraham gave. Abraham did not keep coming back to Mel every month, dishing out 10% of his possessions. He did not keep coming back to Mel every year to dish out 10% of his possessions. It was a one-time deal between Abram and Mel right there. Mel gave, or Abraham gave Mel 10%. Okay? Number three, Abraham had just gone into battle to, to rescue his nephew who kept getting in trouble. And so he goes to rescue his nephew, and he goes to battle, and he kills a whole bunch of people, like a whole bunch of people. And not only does he kill a whole bunch of people, but as customary in in this culture, they then raided everything that those people had and took what they felt was suitable. So he killed a bunch of people. He raided their possessions. He took all their possessions, divvied out the 90% he liked, and gave the 10% to Mel. You guys tracking with me? Okay. I would venture to say that this is not the model of worship God requires of us. Amen. Come on. God is not looking at you and going, go wipe them out, find out what's really good, bring me 10% that you don't like. 
Amen? Just so we're all on the same page. Context is what? Getting that important. See, Abraham gave 10% to Melchizedek, so should you. He killed a bunch of people and robbed them. I mean, like, I don't know how I feel about this right now. Hang in there. If one were to use this to teach from, it would be important to highlight the fact that this was a long time before Moses, uh, before, before Moses, before Aaron, before Joshua, before the possession of the promised land. And we don't see this as a requirement to give. Even in the customary culture it was, it wasn't a requirement to give. It was an opportunity for him to give. So if you're going to use that, that's what you would use it as. If you were going to use it to preach, which is not the right way to use it, if you're going to use it to preach on giving, you would say, hey, there was an opportunity. He chose the opportunity to give to Mel. That's what you would, you would say. His response was one of gratitude and respect. So fast forward some many years later, Israel comes out of Egypt. Right? They spent years and years in Egypt. They come out of Egypt and then they go to the promised land. How many of y'all remember the story? They cross over the Jordan River and they go into the promised land, right? And do you know what they do as they go into the promised land? They kill a bunch of people. They do. They kill a bunch of people and they take a bunch of possessions that are not theirs. So they did the same thing that Abraham did, right? Okay. So not only did they take that, but they also took their land. They took all their land, drove them out, took all their land. Right? Manifest destiny. Right? Okay. Y'all, I see how you're looking at me right now. So they go and they take their land. And as, as they take possession of the land, Aaron stands up and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide the land. God wants us to divide this land up. We're going to divide this land amongst 12 tribes. Well, not 12. We're going to divide this land amongst 11 tribes. In one tribe will not be allowed to possess any land. That one tribe is the tribe of Levites or the Levite tribe. They're not allowed to possess any land because the Levites are going to be the priestly tribes, right, the priestly tribe. And they're going to be the ones responsible for maintaining and holding and hearing uh, Israel to worship, how we worship. And so they're going to be in the tabernacle, and they're going to be taking care of the sacrifices. They're going to be slaughtering a lot of animals. They're going to be doing all sorts of stuff. They're not going to have time to plant seed, to raise cattle, to do anything. They're going to be all about the Lord's business. And so because that's what's going to be the deal with them, because that's what they're going to do, here's what you're going to do. Aaron says he gives this law to them. In Numbers 18, verse 21, look at it. It says, as for the tribe of Levi, your relatives, I will compensate them for their service in the what? Tabernacle. Instead of an allotment of land, I will give them the what? Tithes. I will give them the tithes from the entire land of Israel. I will give them a tenth of the entire land. So everybody who lives, every member of every other tribe, if you are raising crops, you're raising cattle, whatever, you were to give 10% is to go to the tabernacle so that the Levites can offer sacrifices and so they can live, so they can eat, so they can be taken care of. Right? All right? So there was that. There was the the Lord, that would be called the, the Lord's tithe, right? And then there were other laws that were given. And under those other laws... Um, there was also a, 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 a family tithe, right? The family tithe was added. That was 10% of the 90% that was saved, uh, uh, saved for future support. So 10% has gone away. Now you have 90%. You take another, 90, or another 10% and you put it away, right? You save it for future support of the family. 
Oh, and don't forget about the poor tithe, because there was the poor tithe too. Every third family's tithe was given to the poor. So they gave to the poor. Now, tithing was something that Israel struggled with throughout her whole, whole, uh, throughout the Old Testament. You can go back and read it. Again, I already said it was part of the reason why they, they were thrown into captivity in Babylon, according to the scripture, was that they weren't adhering to tithe. They weren't adhering to the laws. They weren't letting the land rest, all the things that were laid out. Now, this is a very short overview, um, a very short overview of what could be a very long study. And I feel like I don't want to preach a long study on this. I don't really feel like you guys would come back. So we're not going to do that. One message, right, is what you get. But some people may have, been, may have been taught, like Pastor Chris, I was taught that the laws applied to us, that even though, even, even Jesus said that we are to tithe. Um, even Jesus said that we were to tithe. That's what they said, but well, let's look at those things real quick. Okay? So did Jesus tell you that you're supposed to tithe? Well, let's find out, right? So here's a question. Let me ask you a question before we get to that point. Let me ask a question. Who was the law given to? Not a trick question. Who was the law given to? The law was given to who? The Israelites. That's an easy question. That's not a trick question. Who was the law given to? The Israelites, the Jews, right. Leviticus 26, verse 46. Listen what it says. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord uh, made between himself and who? The children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. These are the laws, and they are between God and Israel. Right. Remember, the Bible was written for you, not to you. You don't live in 2450 B.C. You don't even live in 700 B.C. when all these books were starting to be put together in paper after generations and generations being passed down verbally. You don't even live in 700 B.C. When they were finally written down, you don't even live in first century Palestine under Jewish uh, religion, under Roman oppression. Can we agree with that? Amen. You, that was really, really like three people said amen. Y'all, we live in 2024. In case you were wondering, 2024 CE, right? Post-cross of Jesus Christ, post-fulfillment of the law. So we're clear. Were the laws ever written to you? Answer the question. No. I want you walking out of here with confidence, right? No, they were not written to you. Now, what about Jesus? Didn't, didn't Jesus say that we're to tithe? Didn't, didn't he tell people to tithe? Or rather, he told them what to do when they tithe. In other words, it was an expected part of worship for the Jews at that point, to tithe. And Jesus was a... Jew. Everybody know that one? Okay. Jesus was a Jew who lived in first century Palestine under the Jewish religion, had grown up in the Jewish religion, and had grown up under the law. So Jesus knew it, right? So when Jesus addresses this concept of tithing, he is addressing other Jews under a law that had been established for a very long time. Matthew 23, 23. And let's really look at what he was highlighting when he spoke to him about this. This is where Jesus talks about tithe. This is it. You ready? Matthew 23, 23. He says what? Starting off, woe to you. How many know if Jesus is saying, woe to you, you should probably listen right there, right? Right? Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and who? Pharisees. 
And then he finishes up, hypocrites. Why did he call them a hypocrite? Watch. For you pay tithe. You do so good at paying tithe that you separate a tenth of the mint that you raise and the anise you raise and the cumin you raise. You, you, you grow. Y'all, have y'all cumin? Like they were so particular. They were like sitting down and slicing, like measuring it out, you know. Cumin. You ever had cumin? I threw some cumin and some salmon this past weekend. I was blown away. Tastes really good. I had not really had cumin that I know of. But if I eat Mexican food, I think I have. I digress. For, for you pay a, I know, I'm so bad. Squirrel, right? For you pay a tithe of mint and anise and cumin. He said this. Watch, watch, watch. This is so good. He said, but what? You have neglected the, come on, say it loud. You neglected the what? Weightier matters of the law. You guys are all around there bragging about the fact that you give 10% of everything you bring to the table. And Jesus said, yet you've, you've neglected the weightier things of the law. There are things more important under the law than giving 10% of what you raise or what you develop. There's more important. What is it more important? He said, you've neglected, I love it. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what are those things? Watch. Justice, mercy, in faith. He said, you guys are missing it. If you're giving 10%, great, that's awesome. But if you're, if you're ignoring people, if you're walking right past the poor person, the person who's been beaten and left to die, and you're not doing anything about it, you're missing the mark. I don't care about what money you give. I care about what you're showing, justice, mercy, and faith. He said, these you ought to have done without leaving the others all undone. give 10%, but I don't tip when I go to the restaurant. How rude. <laughs> I give my 10%, but I don't hand anybody anything when I see them on the side of the street. Rude. I give 10%, but I don't say anything when someone's being mistreated. Rude. <laughs> so my pastor is on it today. Well, wait, so Jesus says something carries more weight than tithing, justice, mercy, and faith. Do you know what this sounds like? It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like the scriptures that we started off with, right? When the whole context of the scriptures we started off with in the book of, the book of Malachi. Isn't that what the writer of Malachi was trying to communicate? If you go back and read the verses before and afterwards, you've neglected the orphans. You've neglected the widows. You've neglected your employees. You've neglected the foreigners. The same thing. If you don't tithe, then you're robbing God. Church, Jesus didn't say that. What you can say, though, is that Jesus did say to religious people of his day, that they neglected the weight of your matters of law when they tithed without justice, mercy, and faith. So let me tell you, so there is no mistaking what I am saying. Hear me out. You ready? You do not have to tithe 10% of your income. Period. You do not have to tithe 10% of your income to be blessed. Period. You are not robbing God if you don't tithe 10% of your income. Period. And listen, God is not mad at you if you don't tithe 10% of your income. I have friends of mine 
pastors, friends of mine, who do not believe, who, who believe along the lines of what I'm talking about right now, but will never preach it. And do you know why they won't preach it? Because they can't preach it. Because contrary to what you think, everything that we do here right now costs what? Costs money. It does. It does. And again, like I said at the beginning, I believe in giving. If you've been blessed and you get fed here and you're a part of this thing, man, support it. Do it. Just support it. I'm not telling you what to support. Just support it. It could be serving. It can be volunteering. It could be giving financially. But the reality of this is this thing that we do here on the weekends, it costs money. And see, when you get bigger and bigger and bigger, the costs go higher. higher. See, the bigger the machine gets, the more it costs. And so a lot of times pastors are stuck in this conundrum where they have to actually stand on something and preach counter to what they really believe in their heart. They do. I was a part of a, a, a church a long time ago, and I, and I get it. When I was younger in ministry, we had the same idea, man. You know, we, we believe in tithing. We believe in tithing. And so we would promote this, this idea of the 90-day the, the money-back guarantee. That's how we spent it. That's how we did it. We, we would preach and we would teach on tithing. We would say, there's a 90-day money back. We even had shirts made that read on the back of the shirt. It said, the tithe challenge, 90-day money back guarantee. And this is what we said. We said, we challenged everybody. Um, we challenged everybody. If you've never tithed and you start tithing, see that God won't open up the storehouses on the windows of heaven. That's the latter part of Malachi, by the way. See if God won't open up the storehouses of heaven. So just try it. Just start trying and just tithe. Give 10% of your income. See if you're not more financially blessed in 90 days than you are right now. And we ran that whole thing for years. And do you know, we never had one person come back to us and say it didn't work. And someone would say, well, then it, that's proof that it worked. No, because who wants to be the person after 90 days that comes back and says, I haven't seen an increase in my finances and I'm still in debt, and I'm still struggling, can I please get my money back? True story. We looked at the data. You could see people took the challenge, and then people stopped paying after 90 days. The idea of like, and I get it. I get the heart behind it, the heart behind it. Some people believe it. Some people are in that spot. I believe you have to give 10% of your income, and we, we do. I believe in the vision, the mission of the church. The church doesn't work like this without money. I get it. But, man, I look back at some of the things I did in, in my youth when I was starting the ministry, and I grieve because how many people are in that spot well, they took the challenge and it didn't work. Now, are there people who took the challenge and, man, their finances, yeah. Some people would look at it and go, man, I started giving 10% and I've never looked back. Great. But I bet you also started managing your finances better. I bet you that when you started giving, you started looking and prioritizing things and saying, I can't go out to eat right now because I'm, I'm part of this thing or I'm doing this thing. A lot, of, a lot of times that's what happens. You guys still with me? All right. I know, I know, and I get it. But listen to me, there's fear that exists in a lot of churches that says if I tell people they don't have to tithe, then they won't give. Do you know the only time we really talk about money? I mean, we talked about, we did one week on our Disciples series about giving, and we talked about giving not just in finances, but your time and your talent and all the other stuff along with that, and that was last year. The only time we ever talk about money here 
is when we say, hey, there are three ways you can give. You see it every single week. We say there's an offering box in the back. You can give online at thejourneychurch.cc or you can tithe. 84321, select Journey Church. We say it every single week. But I will never get up here and spend the first 20 minutes of the service preaching on money to make sure that the offering is full before we leave so we can continue to do this wonderful work that God's called us to do. What a sad place to live in. Mighty men and women of God, if we are using guilt, manipulation, and condemnation to fund our ministries, then I would say that it is a ministry that doesn't need to exist. I thought that was really good. But because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, that one gets some play. Okay, there we go. Okay. <clears throat> the, the other statement that, that we hear, and like I said, from the charismatic background, um, is if you don't have enough to meet your needs, sow it as a seed. And this statement falls in the same category as manipulation of the tithe. And do you know the ones who are usually making statements like this? I hear it more often with televangelists. You watch televangelists and you'll hear it all the time. If you, we believe in seed, time, and harvest. We believe that as you sow into this good ground, the soil that God has, uh, has us telling, you know, that you give into this, you, God will return it to you 30, 60, 100 fold. That's what he'll do. It's like, well, I don't have that. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're sitting right there watching this broadcast and you're thinking, but I don't have enough to even meet my need. Well, let me tell you a secret. You can turn around and take that money and turn it into a seed. Sow it into the wonderful ground and of this ministry, and you will see a return on that, and all your needs will get met. No. How about this? How about this? A better response would be, if you don't have enough to meet your need, maybe you need to evaluate, are you spending more than you make? If you don't have enough to meet your need, uh, how about this? This is a better response. Well, let's figure out how to help you budget your money better. If you don't have enough to meet your need, well, let's figure out a, a solution in the process. Let's figure out some skill sets that you can develop in your life and that you can develop more skill sets because the more skill sets you develop, the more value you become, right? Because in your job, you get paid according to the problems you solve and not according to the problems you create. So if you increase your ability to solve more problems, then you will inevitably make more what? Money, that's a better response. Another one would be, are you buying things you don't need but you want? There are a ton of better responses to tell someone who doesn't have enough to meet their need. Maybe this one. You don't have enough to meet your need? Can I help you? How about, can I sow a seed into your life? Can I buy your groceries? I told you my wife's really good at that. Hit me up. I'm buying groceries. The lady in front of me. How much groceries? <laughs> I bought this person a meal. That's cool. How much was it? I know it's such a that's, that's a that is the ye of little faith. You know, there are a lot of things you can do. Did you know that there's not a single command? And I'm going to take the next few moments and wrap it up. There's not a single command in the Book of Acts or the Epistles that states that one should tithe 10% of their income. Rather, the writers encourage giving from the heart, giving from grace. Hang in there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul writes, you must each decide in your what? Heart. How much to what? 
You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give what? Reluctantly. Or in response to pressure. Every time I read that, immediately I hear, under pressure. Don't give reluctantly or in response to being under pressure. For God loves a person who gives what? Cheerfully. If you're giving and you're mad that you're giving, stop giving. God is not looking at you going, I know you're really frustrated right now. Get a little loose. I know you're a little frustrated right now, but I sure am glad you gave. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing at all. He's looking at you going, my child, this is an opportunity, not an obligation. Stop. Put your money back in your pocket until you can give it freely. You can give it cheerfully. You can be excited about why you're giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. It blesses God's heart when you give cheerfully, not when you're sour, right? It, it becomes a vehicle of his love to be experienced in the lives of others when you give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Paul goes on. This is how Paul encouraged the churches to give financially. Right here. He said, now I want you to know, where did it go? There it is. All right. Stop playing with me. All right, here we go. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done to the churches in Macedonia. Keep going. He said, they are being tested by many troubles, and they are very what church? Poor. But they are also filled with abundant what? Joy. So even though they were poor, they had abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. Now, this scripture a lot of times is preached with, you see, even though they had nothing, they still gave something. And so if you have nothing, it's not nothing. You can still give something. You're missing the point. Paul's highlighting the very thing he just picked out in the last verse. He said, even though they're poor, they have what? Joy. And that joy allows them to give richly, generously. Keep going. Verse 3, for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but also more. Why? Because of the joy, 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 joy down in their heart. That's right. <laughs> and they did it of their own free. That means they didn't have some pastor up there going, and if you don't give, we're going to have to close the doors of this wonderful ministry. Not what he said. Verse 4, he said, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift. They begged them. They had so much joy. They were saying, look, how can we be a part of this? And Paul probably looked at them and said, you guys are challenging me. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Keep going. And they, didn't even, they did even more than we had hoped for. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. Keep going. He says, so we have urged Titus who encouraged your giving in the first place to return to you and encourage you to finish the ministry of giving. Keep going. Since you excel in so many ways, your faith and your gifted speakers and your knowledge and your enthusiasm and your love from all of us, I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. Let it overflow. I am not commanding you to do this. Do you see that? I'm not commanding you to do this. Anybody tells you the Lord told me you should give, you tell them to shut up. 
All right. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. He said, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty you might I can make you rich. He said, here is my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Keep going. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched by your, your giving. Give in proportion to what you what? Have. Not what you don't have. Whatever you give is acceptable. Whatever you give is what? Acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. God, how many times does Paul need to say that? Why can't the people on TV get that? If you don't have enough to meet your need, sow it as a seed. That's not what Paul, that's not what Jesus said, and that's not even what Paul said. Of course I don't mean giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. (laughs) I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. And later, you will have plenty and can share with you. They can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be what? Equal. Keep going, verse 4 to 15. As the scripture says, those who gather a lot have nothing left over, and those who gather only a little have enough. This is the method we take on giving. This is the method. We invite you. To give. We don't obligate you to give. I love, dude, I'm telling you, what God has done in our church through COVID, we started this church five months before COVID, before the world shut down, and God sustained. This thing was sustained by people who were like, I want to be a part of that. I want to give financially to that. I want to sing on the worship team when there's nobody sitting in the sanctuary for five months. I want to do that. I, I want to be a part of that. The generosity of people who've come to be here and come to be, it's been amazing. It is really crazy. I've had pastors tell me, this is, I've gone to uh, conferences and I've had pastors ask me, when you started your church, what organization did you partner with? And we said, we didn't. When you started your church, what grants did you apply for? We didn't. I had been through all that. I've gone through, jumped through hoops and been through church planner boot camps, got a $50,000 check to start a church that we did in San Antonio. I've been through all that. When we started this church, God said, go. And I'm like, how? And he said, watch. And I went and worked in crawl spaces. We had people offer, offer to help bankroll our, our budget. Churches offer to help bankroll our budget. Send us your budget. We'll help you get started. And I was like, that could be really good. And God said, no. I'm like, oh, how's this going to happen? You're going to go work. Where am I going to go work at? In crawl spaces, you liar. You ever argued with God before? Yeah. Crawl spaces in a dark, dingy crawl space? Do you know what lives in your crawl space? No, you don't because you don't go in your crawl space at all. I can tell you what's in your crawl space. It's nasty. Most of them. And so I've, just, I've, just, I've seen God's faithfulness even in that time period. And then it came to a place where the church could help pay for us financially a little bit. And that was awesome. And then we were to buy a house. And, and then it grew into this thing. Now I do with this, the company I work for, Worthy Time Services, I'm able to be a chaplain for them. And I go in twice a week. And I talk to guys who will never step foot in this church. And that's okay. That's completely okay. Listen, this is great. 
We did a job, our company did a job for a lady in a, in, a, in a community down the street from the company. And then I turned around as a corporate chaplain and did the funeral of her best friend. The company fixed your sewer and then sent the corporate chaplain to do your funeral. How incredible is that? This is so incredible, y'all. We are Signature Awakening Ministries, and I'm wrapping with this. Signature Awakening Ministries, Dr. V.J. Goyle. He'll be here the second weekend of March, okay? So you don't want to miss that service, right? He's going to be here second weekend of March. It's going to be phenomenal. Our church, two years ago, partnered with this ministry. We sponsored 50 pastors in India to be trained. First-generation pastors, first-generation Christians to be, be trained. Our church, small church, sponsored 50 pastors. This year, it came back and I said, we're going to do it again. 50 pastors. The cost went up by like, I don't know, it was like $15 a pastor. So it was $100 per pastor. I told VJ, we're going to do 50 pastors. Our church, our little church, is going to sponsor 50 pastors. $5,000 of that, right? $5,000. And then we add another $1,000 on top of that. He's coming in on March 2nd. It's incredible. So $6,000 we've given to this ministry. And VJ called me. He said, Chris, he said, your church is the smallest church and by capita has given the most money to our ministry. Not because we sat there and said, if you don't give, their blood is on your hands. We didn't do any of that. We didn't do any of that. We literally stood up before the services and we said, hey, we have a great opportunity. We're excited about it. They're preaching the gospel. Who wants in on this? And you guys were like, I'll get on on that. And we sponsored. And they were sponsored. Like I said in the beginning, Pastor Kim and I love what God is doing here. And we love what God has built here. And we love, love that it is and will always be a place of grace. And so I'm going to tell you right now from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you so much for serving with your gifts and your times and your talents. Thank you so much for giving financially and supporting the ministry that we, we have here. Thank you for that. But I promise you, it'll be a safe place forever. And if you're at the spot and you're like, I want to give, you know how to give. We tell you every week, right? You put it up on the screen. There's an offering box in the back. Give. Cheerfully. Happy. Smile. Don't frown and drop it in the box. I'll pull it out and give it back to you. <laughs> Amen? You can give online or you can give via text to give. It's up to you. Will a man rob God, right? You're robbing God if you do not tithe your 10%. Jesus didn't. 100%. Right? Right? And if you don't have enough to meet your need, brother and sister, you should sow it as a seed. Jesus didn't say that. This has been such a fun series. To be fair, everybody, heads close your eyes real quick, and then we're going to wrap up with some worship.